0: So welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast, Professor David Borton. Dr. Borton has interest in specialization in neuroengineering and is currently at the Swiss National Institute of Technology. Dr. Borton, welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. Hi John, thanks for letting me be here. You have a very broad interest in the areas of spinal cord injury repair and rehabilitation. Uh, perhaps the way to start this discussion is for you to give us a just a brief introduction of your interest and the status of your research. As a neuroengineer, I always look at
1: neuroregenerative problems from a technology standpoint, and in particular what I'm looking at in spinal cord injury repair and rehabilitation is how can we use new technologies to give us a new angle looking at rehabilitation process that goes on after spinal cord injury. What's really been amazing in this work, not just mine, but many other people's, is that spinal cord can actually recover quite a bit after injury. And what's interesting is that we just don't know how to drive or guide that recovery. And so what I look at currently is finding technologies to help drive that recovery in a, in a processed manner.
0: So I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that your studies are rather fundamental or do you have some applied work as well? So my work is actually mostly applied. So we do experiments
1: in animal models and then we also are building a a spinal cord injury rehabilitation institute in Lausanne, Switzerland for human clinical trials which is in progress being built.
0: So I know there's lots of technologies emerging on the horizon, but perhaps for the interest of our listeners, what's the state of the art for these types of injuries today?
1: Well, it really depends on where the injury is on the spinal cord and how complete it is. So if you have injuries that are completely disconnecting the brain circuitry from the spinal cord circuitry, there actually are not many therapies available currently for that type of of injury, however, when you have an incomplete spinal cord injury, there are ways for us to leverage the remaining nervous system, or parts of the nervous system connecting the brain to the external effectors, like the muscles. And so there we have very you know frontier medicine is really looking at how do we integrate robotics, robotic arms, how do we control them with muscles that are still controllable by the person in order to regain some ability to grasp objects around them? In the lab at Switzerland, we really focus on locomotion. So we look at spinal cord injuries that are in the lower thoracic region, excuse me. Um, And in those injuries, someone is still able to move their arms and has some control over their trunk, but it's unable to maintain balance or locomote. And so what we have been using is a combination of electrical therapy, electrical stimulation of the spinal cord, chemical therapy to help activate the nervous system, and robotic support, this is body weight support, to help the person or the animal model in this case get up and start trying to walk.
0: So my presumption is that time is of the essence when there's a spinal cord injury. Is the success of these particular techniques you're beginning to introduce to us critical in terms of when the intervention is compared to when the insult was? You're
1: absolutely right. Time is definitely of the essence, We see much better rehabilitation and recovery if you're doing rehabilitation efforts soon after the injury. However, surprisingly, what we find is actually if you are able to activate the nervous system, which means not just having someone do a passive movement or have their arms stretched, but instead have that animal or person actively doing, participating in this with help from electrical stimulation of the spinal cord and for these chemicals, we actually are able to see significant recovery far beyond the normal recovery period or normal rehabilitation expected period, which is soon after the injury.
0: Does it make any difference if the damage is due to disease as opposed to trauma? Yes, of course. That is a good question. So from trauma, as you can
1: imagine, when something actually hits a certain part of the nervous system, say the spinal cord, maybe from a motorcycle accident or something like that, you have a lot of inflammation and a lot of processes that continue to damage the nervous system in that area. And so... Very important efforts in these kinds of situations to help recover the nervous system is to actually mitigate this inflammatory process and the the kind of damage that the body's in a way doing to itself after these traumatic injuries. The process of disease is very different and often comes from demyelination, like as in, in multiple sclerosis. And that's a very different, slow process that we can't... You know, you don't address it right at the beginning because there is really no beginning of it. You're catching it probably only once it's already been progressing for many, many years. So yes, the approaches are very different.
0: You introduced in your comments a number of therapeutic approaches that you take. For example, I recall electrostimulation, and then you mentioned robotics. In the case of electrostimulation... At least from my perhaps naive perspective, I view this as being a direct intervention, whereas robotics is a secondary assist that might be equally effective, but it's just a completely different approach. Is this separation of these two that I've just shared with you a realistic definition of these two approaches? These are two different approaches, and there are many others that can be
1: categorized in that as well for chemical therapies, for example. However, one thing that we feel very strongly about and in Switzerland, at this university, in the EPFL, the Eco-Polytechnique Federal de Lausanne, and many other groups in the world, we feel very strongly that these therapies must be combined in order to have the true beneficial effect. And so what we showed in a science paper last year, or actually 2012, was that through this combined electrical stimulation, chemical activation, and robotic support, we were able to get significant recovery meaning regrowth or, or new sprouting of neurons that were still in the spinal cord around the gap in this injury model that we had in the rodents. So really, I feel that while they are separate therapies, the robotic interfaces, the electrical stimulation, chemical stimulation, we find a much better response when we use them together, and that's the key, with active participation of the animal or the human.
0: So tell me a little bit more about chemical stimulation. Is this growth factors, or how are you chemically stimulating the injured area? The stimulation I'm talking about is not growth factors, however,
1: that is one that many people might use to help the neurons regrow. There's a lot of supraspinal drive going to these areas normally in a healthy subject. And when you have a damaged nervous system, damaged spinal cord, you actually lose a lot of the drive going below the injury site. So what we do is we replace that drive. So this is glutamatergic and monominergic drive. These are particular chemicals that help activate the neurons in that area that are normally being activated by the brain and so we replaced those chemicals to help this area maintain an ability to move into an active state. What's amazing in locomotion is that there have been many studies, so if you you actually disconnect the brain from the spinal cord you're still able to have what would be considered somewhat normal locomotion if you stimulate the right areas of the spinal cord. This is because we have something called a central pattern generator in the spinal cord. It's kind of a circuit that's already built to help us walk. It's built over many years of us learning how to walk as a kid. And so if we can just simply reactivate that section, even without any supraspinal input, we're still able to drive locomotion. But in order to drive rehabilitation, that's when we really want to get the supraspinal, the brain involved, and the person or animal subject involved actively in trying to move, trying to walk, because that's what drives the regrowth
0: around the damaged area. Thank you. I visit with many people who tend to translate all... Therapies to be stem cell-based therapies. Uh, In this discussion so far, you haven't mentioned stem cells at all. Is this not part of your studies? Stem cells are extremely promising research. It is not something I
1: currently have looked at because, again, my focus is on the neurotechnology, so I build these systems to help us stimulate properly in the spinal cord, to help us get the chemicals to where they need to go in the spinal cord and to build these robotic interfaces to help us maintain balance for these uh, subjects. Stem cells research is definitely something that needs to be continued to move forward, and it has extremely promising results. What has been very difficult in that field is to maintain the stem cells or the growth factors in the right area of the spinal cord, to build a matrix that will hold everything together while the neurons try to regrow
0: through it. That's been challenging, but I think it's extremely promising. Yeah, I know there's lots of people that try to track stem cells and where they go. and uh, that's, that's Exactly.
1: And so one benefit of our technology platform combining all of these therapies together is that something like stem cell research, once we find a good matrix to put it in into the area of the spinal cord that's injured, with our platform we're able to then drive the regrowth in a manner that is consistent with how the body would normally be trying to drive locomotion or drive motor control. One problem with stem cells currently is that they don't really have an idea of how to contain their growth. There's almost too much growth sometimes in stem cells when you put them in into the spinal cord. So we want to make sure we have growth, but not too much, and that it's steered.
0: One of the interesting things about your study is I noticed you use a multidisciplinary team of engineers, neuroscientists, mathematicians, and clinicians who have worked working together. And uh, We find this in many of the people that we visit on this podcast series, that it's a multidisciplinary team. And, of course, the other aspect, the the, the corollary to this, is you just described to us this multifactorial approach to solving the problem with the example the electrostimulation, the robotics, and the chemical stimulation. So this is a, a very clear path that I see many scientists following these days for many types of regenerative rehabilitation.
1: These are complicated problems we face, and we need to bring all the solutions we can together to help solve them. Right. Um, It's also a lot of work, and we can't do it alone, so (laughs) we have huge teams, as you mentioned.
0: So, Dr. Borden, I understand that uh, you also have an interest and some experience in neuroprosthetics. Perhaps to start this part of the discussion, where do neuroprosthetics fit relative to the rehabilitation strategies you've just shared with us. Yes, so
1: rehabilitation prosthetics have worked really well for injuries that are incomplete, as I mentioned earlier on. So when you have a more complete spinal cord injury, especially when it's high up in the spinal cord, in the cervical region, you end up having people who are unable to control their arms, control their legs, and really unable to communicate with the world. In these situations, there's a field termed neuroprosthetics, that may be able to help them gain communication back with the people and communication with physical objects in the world. And so I find this neuroprosthetics field to really be for the more severe cases of spinal cord injury or neuromotor
0: disease. So what technologies do you employ when you take this particular strategic approach? Yeah, so historically uh, very famous
1: experiments from 2006 and 2012 and more recently 2013 from Pittsburgh there have been groups who have been taking signals directly from the motor cortex of the brain and translating them into command signals for external interfaces, such as a robotic arm or a computer cursor on a screen. There have been amazing examples where you've had a paralyzed person be able to scroll on or a, a write a, a small command or a chat to a family member saying hello through a prosthetic interface, And now more recently, we have had two examples of a human controlling robotic limbs to bring a glass of coffee to her mouth, for one example, and then another one was stacking cups. And these are really incredible examples where we've been able to take technology from the microelectronics industry and interface it with something like the brain and pull out signals that can be used to help someone regain some communication with the world.
0: I've seen a few examples of this, and I would agree with you. These are incredible advances. Now, as I understand your current situation, while you're in Switzerland, you're going to be returning to Brown University to continue this work? Yeah, exactly right. And one of my major
1: focuses is getting back to the technology and finding ways to do all of these really amazing work that we've been talking about, but now with wireless technologies. One of the things that's been limiting our field a bit is that we have been doing neuroprosthetics and rehabilitation efforts have always required lots of cables to be either on the person or on the animal subject. This has been limiting our ability to have those people walk in a normal environment, and it's in a way been limiting our ability to learn more about the brain and the nervous system because it's always been in a slightly constrained context. And so from my neuroengineering background, I plan to focus heavily on integrating state-of-the-art wireless technologies into both neurorehabilitation and neuroprosthetics fields.
0: So if I recall correctly, there's actually two issues. One is this wire versus wireless connect strategy or approach. And the other is, if I recall, there can be difficulties with the electrodes that are implanted in the brain, and they lose effectiveness over a period of time? Yeah, that's correct. Those are two major
1: issues or roadblocks, in a way, facing this field. Now, the electrode interface with the brain... There are many people working on that interface that's called an electrode and to-neuron interface. That's a complicated effort but I think people are making progress. There are people working at Pittsburgh on this and I think uh, other locations around the country. My focus is more on the getting rid of the cable side of this and really finding ways to integrate our state-of-the-art microelectronics. You know we have these magical devices, iPhones or, or you know, smart watches or whatever that can transmit so much data from your body, but we're not using them, we're not integrating them into the science side of really helping people who have had some injury. And so I think by really bringing these new technologies into the context of recording high bandwidth data from the brain, for example, or being able to stimulate the spinal cord wirelessly while an animal is trying to walk, these will really advance the field and advance our understanding of these parts of the nervous system.
0: Out of curiosity, do these transmitters require a battery, i.e., is there a battery implanted within the body to make this work?
1: Yeah, there are many different modalities. Certainly, they require power. These are all active electronics, and we need to power them in order to send this data a long distance away. Now, where the battery sits is another question. You know, we have pacemakers, a good example of pacemakers, or deep brain stimulators, where you have a device that has been implanted inside of the body, underneath the chest generally and that holds a battery. Those have been proven safe for many, many, many years, and that's a very well-respected technology. So whether we move the batteries into the body or outside, that's a, certainly we want to go in the direction of bringing it in the body, because that allows us to close the skin and not have any chance of infection. In the current studies, what are called BrainGate studies from Brown, and there was a study by Andy Schwartz here from Pittsburgh in the human trials of taking motor cortex information to control a prosthetic arm. Those devices were actually percutaneous in that they had a connector coming through the skin, which we'd all like to get rid of.
0: Dr. Borden, you talked about stimulating the spinal cord. It seems to me that the spinal cord's a fairly complex structure. Is it important where you intercede in
1: the spinal cord? Traditional spinal cord stimulation therapies actually come from pain management. and For example, the Medtronic Restore sensor, for example, that is a pain management system for people who are experiencing pain. You can stimulate the spinal cord and amazingly we reduce the amount of pain they're feeling. But that was only one electrode, maybe two electrodes. And the spinal cord is a very large part of the body. And in fact, it has its own intricate circuitry you might even call the spinal brain. And to be stimulating it with only one electrode is not very nuanced, and we'd like to find a much more fine resolution methodology or technology to stimulate the spinal cord in order to get enhanced locomotor patterns. At uh, EPFL in, in Switzerland, we've been developing with colleagues as part of a European Union Commission project, Project New Walk. We've been developing high resolution microelectrode arrays to be placed epidurally on the spinal cord to give us 16 channels of stimulation. This will allow us to stimulate the left side, the right side, and different segments of the spinal cord, all that are involved in locomotion and balance, and to give us a much more nuanced control over rehabilitation of that area of
0: the spinal cord. Speaking of control, in the ultimate, it seems like you want a feedback loop. You want to stimulate, you want to get a response, and you want to adjust the stimulation based on what happens. Is the, the state-of-the-art matured to that point yet? We're getting there.
1: And so, actually, we've built a external interface, meaning a box of computers behind the animal subject or human subject, that is the control interface. So it's reading in electromyography information from the muscles of the leg. It's reading in kinematic information through video cameras that are recording joint positions of all the, of the joints on the legs. And on top of that, we're now bringing in Neural data from the cortex, meaning the motor cortex, that kind of connecting to what we've discussed in the neuroprosthetics field, connecting those all together into a control interface that can make smart decisions about when to stimulate the spinal cord, where to stimulate in the spinal cord, and how to vary it over time.
0: Dr. Borden, we mentioned before that you have many colleagues and collaborators. Perhaps you could share with us some of the principal contributors to your research and your training. You're exactly right, and this
1: type of project requires incredible amount of effort from many, many people. Now, the group leading a lot of this work in Lausanne is from Gregoire Cortin's lab, and they have been working for many years building these rodent models of spinal cord injury and rehabilitation efforts. And as I mentioned, there's a science paper in 2012 where they present a lot of this work, and it's been quite incredible. Now, supporting that has been Silvestro Michera's group, also in the Swiss National Institute of Technology in Lausanne. Also part of this NEWOC grant, we have many different groups from around the European Union. So we have groups in Zurich, ETH Zurich. We have groups in Germany from the Institut Microelectronique. We have groups from Belgium, groups from Bordeaux, France, Erwin Bezard's group. It's really an an amazing team that's been put together for this project, and I think their collaborations will continue in the future.
0: Well, congratulations to you and all your collaborators. It's a pioneering effort, and it shows a lot of promise. So, Dr. Borton, I want to uh, thank you for joining us today, sharing with us some truly exciting and pioneering research. Uh, We will post on the uh, podcast site a link to Dr. Borton's webpage, and we remind our listeners that we welcome suggestions in terms of podcasts and topics. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And as we conclude this podcast, I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine for sponsoring this podcast series. Good day.